Welcome to the State of Developer Education, a podcast by Major League Hacking. We explore how technical leaders are creatively tackling the developer education gap to help prepare the next generation of technologists for the real world and build businesses that can adapt to any changes in the technology ecosystem. I'm your host, John Gottfried. Hi, everyone. I'm John Gottfried, and welcome back to the State of Developer Education. I'm really excited for this episode with Sean Falconer, who is the head of marketing at Skyflow, but has had a storied and varied career across uh, many different areas of the industry. Thank you for uh, joining us today, Sean. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited for this. Yeah, me too. I always like to start off with my guests with a little bit of background. And my background starts earlier than a lot of people's. I'd love to hear how you first got exposed to programming. So going back to uh, your earliest days, maybe high school, maybe college, maybe earlier, what introduced you to programming? Yeah, I mean, that is looking back always because I've been around for a while. But uh, it started in early high school. So really sort of my gateway drug, I guess, to programming was hardware. Because at that time, I went to high school in the 90s, in the, the mid to late 90s, the PCs were sort of just entering people's homes. And we had you know, early operating systems like Windows 3.21 or whatever it was, I can't even remember now, and then to Windows 95 and then Windows 98 and stuff. And basically, the PCs and the operating systems at that time were super buggy and really crappy. So if you weren't sort of willing to rip apart a computer and try to fix it yourself, you would be constantly going to some sort of uh, service to actually like fix your computer. So I just started ripping apart computers and trying to figure out how they work and how to fix them when they went down. The other thing that coincided with this time with both the PC sort of entering the home was this was also the early internet. And I grew up in a really small rural town in Eastern Canada where and at that time, you know, it felt very isolated. Things have changed a lot. But then suddenly you have this introduction to the internet. And for someone who was really interested in like math and science and so on, where I was in this small town where like literally you walk 15 minutes in any direction, you're in the middle of the woods. Suddenly I wasn't like cut off from the world and all these different resources. And that was like an amazing experience to be able to connect and learn from people all over the world. It was super, you know, fascinating. I became absolutely obsessed with the web, like learning sort of basics of like hacking and freaking and stuff like that. That was on the web at that time and building websites. And we also had, it was, you know, dial up internet uh, era. So we had limited time that you could actually use the internet for months. You'd pay for like 30 hours a month or something like that. But for our ISP, we had free internet from midnight to 8am. So I would get up at 5am before school and use the internet for free for like three hours before school would start learning, like building websites. And, uh, you know, my parents thought I was crazy at the time. And, uh, but now I'm, you know, <laughs> happy that I invested the effort into that. But that introduced me to like early days of JavaScript and started doing some little bit of JavaScript programming. And I'd done, you know, some, some basic programming and bash scripting before that. And I think if you told somebody that was around in the 90s that JavaScript was going to, you know, fast forward 30 years later, was going to be the dominant programming language in the world, it would blow their minds because it was just so terrible back then. But uh, from JavaScript, I, you know, moved on to Java and it was all this coincided with the dot-com boom. And also just this huge transformation that was happening both in, I think, schools sort of transfer, uh, uh, tra trying to adapt to this, this industry transformation that was happening, but also this transformation where suddenly 
you weren't isolated in you know whatever town that you lived in. You suddenly had access to information all over the world. And I think teachers at that time, at least where I was growing up, they had trouble adapting that because they went essentially went from teaching people typing skills on typewriters to suddenly having to, to know how to operate a computer. Or like in my high school, shop classes were canceled and suddenly they were turned into computer labs and they took the shop teachers and told them they now had to teach computer skills as part of some sort of computer tech training. And of course they had trouble, you know, student uh, teachers had trouble like adapting that. But in retrospect, I really am thankful for the students that recognized my interest in, you know, maybe whatever talent I had for computers and technology and programming and so on. And I became basically the tech guy for my high school. And they even gave me keys to the school that would open up any door, any classroom. And I would just go into these classrooms and like start running network cable and setting up labs and fixing computers and all this sort of stuff. And I, they even created a special class for me in my final year of high school, where I'd spend two periods a day essentially just being their free tech support of a, and uh, it was, you know, amazing. And that I think was my first sort of introduction to like thrill you get of like just problem solving of, you know, you're thrown into this thing where like, no one knows how this stuff works. They just know it's not working. And how do you fix it? And I wouldn't know how necessarily to fix it, but I could kind of like dig into the details to try to like debug it and stuff. And that was like the start of building these skills that have, you know, launched essentially a long career for myself. That's awesome. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I also had our shop teacher in middle school teaching a typing class. And I never really thought about how weird that was until now. But I think he was probably the most technical teacher, like technical, maybe in a mechanical sense, but maybe that somehow applied to typing as well. But that's, a, that's kind of a weird uh, realization that I just had. Um, yeah, you had you basically had teachers that were teaching people how to like, build a carburetor. And then yeah. the next year, they're teaching people how to, you know, do word processing because they, I think they we were trying to catch up to what was happening, especially with the dot-com boom and everything of making sure that their students would be prepared for the world, the future world essentially. But also they had these teachers that were, you know, maybe their skill set seemed less valuable from an industry standpoint. And, you know, I don't necessarily agree with that. But like, that was essentially the mode of thinking at the time, at least where I was growing up. Yeah, definitely. I kind of wish I knew how to take apart a carburetor now. But you know, (laughs) did you know anyone else in your school that was into coding? Did you know any other students who were into coding in your school? I should say. There was another friend, a guy that was a friend of mine that he was actually into computers, I think, before I really got into it. And he ended up actually going into computer science out of high school, too. But I think he ended up like dropping out of the programming program. And I'm, I'm sure he's doing something related to computers today, but he was, so him and I were kind of like doing early, like, you know, hacking type thing to, we got to a point where it was, uh, we might be crossing a line that we didn't want to cross. <laughs> but uh, so there was him to kind of like, you know, bounce ideas off of and learn from. But for the most part, it was really just me kind of figuring these things out on my own. So you went into computer science and I noticed when I was doing a little background research that you sort of bounced from school to industry back to school. Why, you know, go back into academia after, as far as I could tell, you you were able to build a, a fledgling career as a software engineer? Yeah, so technically, I never left school. So my undergrad was actually, I was in something called a, a co-op program. So it was a five-year undergrad rather than, you know, a standard four-year. And during... It's a very Canadian thing. 
Yes. So like University of Waterloo does that, University of New Brunswick. And one of the reasons I went to the University of New Brunswick, besides it being the province that I grew up in, was because they had this program. So as part of that, you essentially graduate with approximately like two years of actual work experience. So I would go to school for a year or two terms or maybe a term, and then I would go out and work. And I actually really enjoyed that besides the fact that I didn't end up accumulating massive student loans because I was actually making a decent job, but compared to a lot of friends of mine that are working at like Burger King or something like that in the summer to try to earn money for college, you know, I'm working as a software engineer and I wasn't making the same as like industry wage standards because they're certainly knocking down the price that they're paying students, but I was certainly way better than making minimum wage and way more enjoyable as well. But I really like that balance because I would get to a point at school where I was just kind of like, tired of taking classes and my focus would start to drift. And then I could go out to industry and work for a while. And that would be really invigorating as a different type of learning and different type of work. And then I might grow to a point where I'm getting kind of bored of what I was doing there. And I could go back to, to school and like ramp up again. So I really like that. And then during my master's degree, I in my PhD, I continued to work on the side as a software engineer, either doing like contract work for certain periods of time or um, you know, other based on like the the network and the relationships that I built during my undergrad, essentially by doing these co-op programs, and that ha- helped me you know make some money. But another thing that I was always really conscious of, even though I had wanted to go down a path of being a professor or a professional researcher, I was also very conscious of the potentially like losing my technical skills because I saw lots of people that were doing their PhDs that. Real, like never worked in industry. So their actual coding skills were more like a first or second year computer science student, even though they had been in university for a long time. And, you know, and then or professors that, you know, they're experts in whatever the field is, but they haven't touched like programming in a long time. So they couldn't like actually sit down and code like a hello world program or something. And I didn't want to put myself in a position where I didn't have the flexibility to potentially work as a software engineer. And I did consider, you know, leaving school a number of times. So after my undergrad, in my final year of my undergrad, I had competed in, in my first ACM ICPC World Programming Finals. And that, of course, generated a lot of people to approach me from places like Google and Microsoft and IBM and so on to uh, uh, recruit me. And I ended up interviewing at Google at that time. And this was like the early... like like Google was the hottest company in the world, but like everybody wanted to work there. And uh, I, I and that was my first trip to California where I did on-site interviews, and I didn't end up getting the job, and it was super disappointing. And I would be significantly more wealthy today if I got that job. But it was a really eye-opening experience as well. Uh, so I learned a lot from that. But I ended up going back and doing my master's and then my PhD. And you know, my goal for a long time was to always like position myself so that I could hopefully work on anything that I was interested in. I thought being a professor or researcher might let me do that. And then during my postdoc, I finally reached sort of this mecca of, you know, institution where I was doing a postdoc at Stanford University. I'd always dreamed of doing something like MIT or Stanford or one of these like hallmark institutions. And I just, you know, realized that even though I was good at what I was doing, it wasn't like I was jumping up Saturday morning, like could, and I couldn't wait to like work on this stuff. And I just really liked kind of building things that people would actually use and that would have more immediate impact on someone's life. So I wanted to take these skills that I had from 10 years of university and apply them in a more practical sense that could have more immediate impact for people. So I 
while at Stanford, I ended up starting a uh, company with two other students that were there. So I was the technical co-founder. And then I had a one of my, um, one of my co-founders was from the MBA program there. And then one was from the design school. And we ended up starting this company. And I worked on it for about six months while I was still at Stanford. And then after a year of my postdoc, I left to do that company full-time because we had raised you know some money to kind of go full throttle with it. Yeah. So there's kind of this common complaint that computer science curriculum is too theoretical, right? It's it's all algorithms and the underpinnings of how it all works, but not the implementation. It sounds like you observed some of that in sort of where other researchers and academics were at. Did you find at all that when you were jumping back and forth into industry that you were able to utilize any of that theoretical knowledge in your like industry work? Yeah, I do. I think that it's not necessarily one-to-one. Like, It's not necessarily like you're going to go out and encounter a circumstance in most programming jobs where you need to use like Dijkstra's algorithm or something or Ford Fulkerson's like matching algorithm or something like that. But there is like a way of thinking through those types of problems that is valuable for, I think, any type of engineering. And it also makes you more flexible because a lot of times when we think of engineering today, we're typically thinking about what web application development. And there, maybe there's less of a like one-to-one match. But if you're doing game programming or doing low-level programming or AI programming or any of these types of... like, There's a whole multitude of other types of programming you could be doing, embedded programming. You want to have the flexibility to move between those different disciplines. You need, I think, that like base theoretical understanding to really adapt and be able to do that kind of stuff. And there's also, I think, like a confidence that you can build when you really understand those problems at a deep level. Because then when someone comes to you and you need to do like, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, pull some sort of massive data, you're not necessarily just going to be like, oh, okay, well, I'll do it the way that first jumps into my mind. You might actually take a step back and think at a deeper level of like, how do I do this in, uh, you know, if I have to scale this to millions or billions of people, how do I like set up these different systems? And it's kind of like that second level thinking that I think you can get from some of this by like diving into it. And, but I do think that it's super valuable to balance those two things of, both having the theory as well as the practical. And that's why I like the co-op program. And then all the practice that I did for getting ready for competing in these like programming competitions, it, it's kind of like how um, you know you hear talk about like 10,000 hours for a skill set. And I was practicing for these competitions like 15 to 20 hours a week on top of regular school work and whatever else I was doing. So the, this, this constant exposure to problems and programming, like I didn't have to think about what library am I going to import? Because I could just do that without thinking at all. Or even if I needed to implement a specific algorithm, it was just like robotic. Like you just built up this mechanism of being able to recognize these problems, institute or like implement the solution immediately. And that kind of consistent exposure to any type of skill is like highly, highly valuable. And I was able to use that both in industry and then also for, for schoolwork because suddenly when I get like a undergrad programming assignment, it's like people are freaking out about it, but it's like I do. I spend twenty hours a week on problem solving problems that have nothing to do with school. This is not that hard. Like I can do this in my, my in my sleep at this point. And it was just from that consistent exposure. I don't think it's necessarily like some special skill that I had. It's a muscle, right? And you have to exercise it and build it. And you know, I I didn't study computer science, but I, I've been a programmer for a long time, and. There are certainly moments where I feel like I'm missing the theoretical knowledge and it would be helpful in particular situations. 
And it's much harder to learn outside of school. It's an interesting balancing act. Like it's probably easier to learn coding outside of school, but much harder to learn theory. Yeah, because there's a forcing function to learn coding because you're you're getting paid to do those things. You're not necessarily being paid to you know study big O notation or you know that kind of or analysis or something like that. But I do think that that kind of like thinking of of like problem analysis and then like distilling it down into potential solution and thinking through is this like the optimal solution or is this like an okay solution that translates to other types of problem solving too, even outside of coding, which if you ever want to be an entrepreneur or you want to go into product management or any other types of like functional areas, you need those skills as well. And you kind of, I think you can build those up by having, exposing yourself to uh, this type of theories uh, study. Yeah, definitely. I always joke with people that the MLH team has way more coders doing non-engineering jobs than like any other company I've ever seen. It's like, you definitely have a different way of approaching problems. And it doesn't always require you to write code to solve. But just the way you think about the world is very, very different. I think it's like one of, you know, back when I did my startup, there was a period of time. So this is like 2012, 13 or something like that, where the idea of having like a, a growth hacker, or a growth ninja or whatever, I hated those terms, but like became really like the hot thing. And most of those people came from technical backgrounds because suddenly marketing wasn't sort of the traditional type of marketing. It was marketing at scale of the internet. And it took a different type of thinking. And people who had technical skills could take something that maybe works in like a small level, but you can't scale it without automation. And then they can apply like their actual coding skills to do things that could scale that at like, you know, significant level. And I think that also is like that type of thinking led to the the creation of all these different like marketing automation platforms and stuff like that, like like uh, Marketo and and HubSpot and so on. And there's certain insights or a certain way of of thinking that engineers just develop like that muscle that I think sometimes allows them to see a problem in a different way. Yeah, hundred percent. To go back to something from from kind of your academic experience. I know that many, you know, postdocs, you know, PhD candidates teach as part of their educational journey. What, what did you teach? Yeah, so I taught a bunch of different stuff. So it really, I guess I started in undergrad, I was a teaching assistant. Yep. So there I, I was the teaching assistant for data structures and algorithms classes. And because I had all this experience with programming competitions and like understood that stuff really well, it was hard to get like student TAs that could actually grade, grade that stuff that like had enough knowledge to grade that stuff. So they always ended up tapping me for that. And then I also, you know, we're not related to like an official sort of like academic position, but I had started when I was an undergrad, a programming club at my undergrad university, which still exists today. I also did one at University of Victoria when I was a PhD student there. And those clubs were essentially taught people how to compete in these programming competitions. How do you train to compete in them? Because I felt like if I could do it, why couldn't other people do it? And it was just a matter of kind of like training people and teaching the skills for how they could do it. And that was uh, a great experience because I essentially, it, it made me better because it forced you to essentially learn things at a deep enough level that you can actually explain them to those people. And I had the, it was really like fun, rewarding experience. And it gave me sort of the, the taste of what teaching would be like. But then when I did my PhD, I taught, Human computer interaction, software engineering, and algorithms classes. So that was a, a great experience as well. I really enjoyed working with students. At a place like Stanford versus you know where you went for undergrad, 
how you know, did they approach curriculum differently, right? Because we hear about like Stanford and MIT and, and Waterloo, right? Like being these bleeding edge institutions. I went to a New York State school, probably equivalent to the type of school you went to in Canada, where it was a good program, people knew what they were doing, but it wasn't thought of as bleeding edge, right? Like what did that comparison actually look like in, in reality? I don't think from a curriculum standpoint, it's not nece- it's necessarily super different. I think where the difference comes from is one would be maybe where the research is, but you're not really necessarily exposed to a lot of that as like doing an undergrad program. And then obviously the funding of those institutions is like 10,000x, like whatever it was that my you know, undergrad. But then I think that the one of the differences too is that probably the average student at like a Stanford or MIT is probably, you know, just academically at a higher level than the average student at, you know, the university I went to, for example. Doesn't mean that there aren't people at my university that were outliers that could certainly fit into an MIT or Stanford or something like that. But sort of the baseline average is different because the bar to get in is different as well. So it's just different from probably an overall like average, like quality level. But the in terms of curriculum, I don't think there's a necessarily massive difference. Maybe with some of the advanced classes as you get up into third and fourth year that are available as optional classes for people to take. But in terms of like basic programming, I think, or like basic principles of computer science, you're going to counter the same types of classes through the first and second year. Each university, though, has different, I think, styles and philosophies to how they introduce programming to people. I don't know if MIT still does this, but for a very long time, like Lisp was the first programming language you learned it at MIT. And that's, you know, very different philosophically from most universities. So, and then other, I think there's people who are on the side of the fence that like every, to really learn programming and really learn engineering at a deep level, you have to struggle through the uh, ordeal of dealing with like memory allocation and buffer overflow errors. And these kind of like really hard to understand abstract concepts when you're first learning how to program and like deal with all these nitty-gritty compiler issues and stuff like that. And once you get through that threshold, then you're a much better person if you earned your stripes or whatever. And it also weeds out people who are maybe not cut out for it. Then there's other people who are on the other side of the fence where it's more like, let's give people a taste, make them successful. And then as they're successful, add layers of complexity. So I think that's one of the reasons programming languages like Python and Java or JavaScript are great sort of introductory languages for people because you don't have to deal with compilation cycles. You can essentially have instant gratification right in your terminal to do something, uh, some sort of, you know, build some sort of simple program. I'm more on that side of the fence. I like more of the, you know, modern video game style of learning where you don't start on level 100 with all this complexity in a video game today. You start with really basic skills. And then as you get better and level up, you they add more and more skills and gets more and more complicated. And then, you know, Four months later, you're doing all this crazy stuff in whatever your video game is, but you don't start that way. Whereas the like 1980s, 70s style video games of King Kong, like and and so on, Pac-Man, they're they're the same hardness at <laughs> zero second as they are, you know, multiple days in. It's yep. they're essentially they're like you either learn this or go find something else to do. <laughs> so maybe the speed increases a little bit. That seems to be the only variable I remember changing. Yeah. So. You made that transition from Stanford to starting a company. Obviously, like Stanford is notorious for spinning out founders. 
did your academic experience factor into founding your company at all? Was it a totally disconnected thing? Like, how did that journey actually play out? So, so first of all, I was always like interested in entrepreneurship. And I, why? I mean, I don't even know. Uh, like, maybe I think to be an entrepreneur, you need to have probably a little bit of an irrational belief in yourself to be able to do something that other people can't do. And warranted or not, I've kind of always had that like edge to myself, even though I might not always be willing to say it aloud. But so I think part of that was, and I just always like, even as a kid had always tried to do like little, like I sold like baseball cards. I, when I was in my final year of high school, I started a hardware review website called Hardware Junkies. And that was kind of like my first like business venture. So I was always interested in that. I explored it a bunch of times. So I don't think I had like the right sort of combination of skills to make that full leap of faith until I was like joined up essentially with those other students that filled in the gap from like, you know, business and, and design and so forth. But there was definitely a lot of skills that I developed in academics that I've used in industry, like user-centered design. My PhD was in, uh, you know, a human computer interaction software engineering lab. So I learned a lot about you know, essentially how do you like interview people to gain insights or understand pain points and design systems for them, which is very, very valuable if you're designing a product. And my science skills are also, I think, the backbone of what I've done from like a data science skill perspective. And it's also allowed me to do things, I think, in marketing that are very like metrics driven and diving into the data and trying to understand like why, what are the like signals that essentially make somebody indicate that they're on like a buyer journey or how do you optimize a certain flow and that kind of stuff. You need that kind of like mathematical lens to really like understand those problems and model them at a deep level. And and then I also, as I mentioned earlier, all these things from academics to the programming competitions and, and stuff that I did was it just gave me confidence in like my skills, my ability to tackle new problems, even if they're super abstract. Like with a PhD, you're not only like working on a problem, a lot of the time you're discovering a problem and then you're working on a problem. And that's also what entrepreneurs do. Like they discover pain. And then they figure out how do they alleviate that pain. And hopefully there's enough people in the world that have that pain or problem and that you can actually make a business out of it. And I think industry, as I mentioned earlier, has like helped me turn theory into practice. And even though a lot of the coding that you do in school isn't necessarily really similar to the coding you're doing in a typical engineering job, I think it's still skills that are effective, like transferable in other ways. Maybe it's not exactly one-to-one, but they are useful in a lot of different capacities, just thinking about problems and abstract things. When you started your company, and, and I, my memory of it is like 10 to 12 years ago now, right? Who were the aspirational figures you looked up to at that time in entrepreneurship? Because now the media landscape of entrepreneurship is totally different. Yeah, I think the big one was uh, this guy, uh, Bill Trenchard. He's a he's at First Round Capital as a VC now. He was... Um, a early investor and advisor as well in our company. But he had been someone who had been like, you know, really successful with a number of different startups, eventually became went into full-time investing. And I just I think he really resonated with me because he was now a, an investor, but he had actually done it. Like he had he couldn't have walked the walk. He wasn't necessarily like a career investor. He was someone who had actually built up like his wealth through being successful as an entrepreneur. And I, so I just really valued his advice. And he was also like a super nice guy. 
And that's not always the case when you're dealing with people who are you're essentially begging to give you money. <laughs> so he was uh, super helpful to us in a lot of ways. Cool. That's that's awesome. So you had mentioned to me earlier, and I know you've blogged about this too, that you spent seven years on your company and you know it never kind of scaled past a certain point. And that's not meant to be a neg, right? Like you got further than probably 99% of other startups. But what would you go back and do differently? Like, like when you think back on that, do you think there was something you could have unlocked? Or do you think that there was something flawed about the problem space or the product? Like what might you have done differently? I mean, a lot of stuff. I mean, there's a reason why the success rate on like second time in founders is so much higher. It's just the learning curve is super steep at the beginning. And we made so many mistakes, especially in the first year. Like all the classic mistakes that you read about, and you're like, I'm not, that's not gonna be me. We did all those things. And, you know, we even got, you know, we got to a place in our first year after we had raised like our seed round, which was fairly substantial back then of like $1.8 million. And we had got to a place where within essentially like 10 months of like really doing full operation, we realized we were gonna run out of money and we had to lay off everybody in the company in a, in a single day. It was one of the hardest things that I ever had to, to go through. And, I think one of some of the like one of the big mistakes that we made there was that we realized that what we originally raised money for, we weren't really able to. We didn't feel like we could scale it. We were good at sort of the technology side of it, but we were kind of bad at the operational side of it. So we started to try to like pivot into other areas, and we didn't. While we had already essentially hired a bunch of people to run this other type of business, and we. We tried to hang on to all this talent that we hired because we figured, like, once we figure out product market fit and the business model, we want these people to help us run the business. But then you have a bunch of people who aren't really being fully utilized, or you're giving them like busy work. So that actually takes you, you distracts you from being focused on like the real problem at hand. And by I think making that huge misstep because we didn't want to cut people, we got to a place where we had to make an even harder decision, essentially let everybody go all at once. And that's like one of the biggest mistakes that we made in that first year. And I think from a product standpoint, a lot of the mistakes that we made was just not really doing sort of like users, not talking to like potential customers or not. Like, I think my like one advice, and I haven't, didn't originate this advice, but I, I'll copy it just the same, is you can't talk to customers or potential customers enough as a founder. And we weren't doing enough of that. And what helped us sort of save the business after we laid everybody off, and also two weeks after that, one of our co- my co-founders quit, and then a high-profile hire that we did hang on to, we had to let go a little while later because he was basically interviewing with other uh, other people. So we basically rebooted the company at a stage, and, and I think what allowed us to do that was we just essentially threw out everything that we had and just started taking meetings with anybody that would talk to us. And we were in the hiring space, so we'd go to like restaurants in San Francisco and just interview them and talk to them about like how do you hire today and look for these pain points. And then in, at night we would go back and build like really low level sort of MVP prototypes and bring it back to them and say like, hey, is this, you know, would this be useful? Is this something you would pay for? And we were able to get essentially a minimal viable product that was really focused on a particular pain point for these type of businesses. And that allowed us to scale and then, you know, eight months later or 10 months later, raise additional money from Andreessen Horowitz and save the company. So that's one of the big mistakes. And I think like what Prevented us from scaling was like, or like getting to a place where we were a much bigger company was, I think, failing to kind of recognize what we were good at. We were good at innovating 
from a technology standpoint in the sort of HR job space, especially for what the like lower end of the job market. So not white collar jobs, but like people working in restaurants and blue collar jobs and, and uh, hotels and so on. And there hadn't really been a lot of technology developed for both the businesses in that space, as well as the people who are looking for jobs in that space. So basically, Craigslist is like the number one resource that most people are finding jobs on. And we were really good at the technology space. And I think in retrospect, what we should have did was use our tech, essentially take our technology and sell it as a platform or service to other like Indeed.com or like other companies that are essentially operating in this space or staffing companies. And uh, instead, we were trying to essentially compete with those people, but we were a little far less, but had far less resources, had far less like industry, like understanding knowledge of how to like really do like go to market and sales and all this sort of stuff. And didn't really have the, like the talent on the team to do that, to lead those types of functions. And I think that just led us down a path where it was a struggle to really like grow and burn through a lot of capital trying to figure out a way that we could scale the business. And eventually when we did find a way that we could scale the business, we didn't have a lot of additional resources to experiment or sort of supercharge things. It came down to like us basically owning all the like grunt work of trying to scale it. And we did get to a place where we scaled it to being cash flow positive and having something that was like a growing business, but it wasn't going to be essentially like startup type growth that you're expecting. Did any of you have experience in that like space? Like like had any of you like worked in a restaurant or run a restaurant or had a small business? Just out of curiosity. No, I mean the closest thing I worked my last non-technical job, I worked at Subway in high school. I think all of us had had, had some service, uh, all the founders had had service industry experience. But what led us to it originally was we started it originally with blue collar jobs. So in temp labor. And it was something we kind of stumbled into. The insight that we had initially was that there's all these people like outside of Home Depot waiting like day laborers, right? And they had essentially, uh, they would just wait there and then they would get picked up and go do the job. And this was pretty, well, smartphones were around, but it was very early. But they all had self like feature phones where they could do text messaging. And we thought like, okay, well, maybe we can like do something here to disrupt this market. And it gets a little challenging just from, like a legality standpoint, because a lot of some of those people are illegal immigrants and things. But that allowed us to recognize that there's this other market, which is temp labor, where big construction projects, not you and I hiring plumbers for a web for our home, but you know, they're putting up a building in San Francisco or somewhere and they need to hire 10 plumbers for 10 days, they go to these temp labor companies. And they're all brick and mortar and they essentially use like 1970s like Rolodexes and maybe a spreadsheet to figure out who to essentially send to these. You call them up, you have like a personal relationship with the person on the phone and they're like, hey, I need like three carpenters for tomorrow. Who do you got? They're like, oh, you know, we got Johnny, we got Mary, we got Sally, we'll send them over. And that's like how that business, and it's a multi-billion dollar industry. So we're like, holy crap, like we can essentially disrupt this industry by modernizing the technology. We don't need physical locations. We can use essentially text messaging. We're really early Twilio customers. And I built all these uh, essentially early text mess chat bots that would allow you to essentially coordinate and accept or, or apply for jobs through text messaging. And then we would even do time cards and check-ins through your phone so we could triangulate your location through cell phone towers to make sure that you're actually at the job site, checking in the job site. So we had all this like innovative technology. The challenge there was like sales for one was like something we had no real skills in. And then there's a lot of operational complexity just from 
you are the employer of record. So you take on the liability of those people. And like, I think the number one reason for small staffing companies going out of business in the United States is due to lawsuits for where people get injured. So it's very high risk and you have to get insurance by state. So operationally, it's really complex. And we didn't think that we were like good at that. And we weren't, to be frank, but we were good at sort of technology. So then we thought like, maybe we could apply the technology, some of it to you know, more permanent jobs and go and compete against like Craigslist, essentially. And that's kind of where we went. Interesting. How did that totally unrelated niche become a career in DevRel? <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. So what ended up happening was after I was kind of ready to move on from my startup, I, after seven years, and I took, I basically took a step back and said, like, I'm going to stay on as a consultant. We were cash flow positive. So the business was like in a healthy state, but not like this rocket ship state. And I was ready to move on and do something else. A, I had felt like I was kind of in a weird spot because I'd been engineering for a long time and I was the CTO of the company, but we were never really big. So as, but I had to learn basically how to do marketing. And the way we grew was through SEO and content marketing. That was like how we we essentially became cash flow positive was through marketing. And I just had to learn those things because it was either I learned them or we go to business. And I had to build, I built our like, you know, myself and my co-founder built like our original like SDR sales team. We didn't know anything about that, but we had to learn. He was an MBA from Stanford. So I learned a lot about like, you know, designing business models and sort of the, the business side of things from him. And I worked, so I ended up like learning this like spectrum of skills that was outside of technology. And I wasn't necessarily spending all my time on the tech, even though I developed a lot of the product myself. So I wasn't sure like what direction I should go and like where I fit in the industry. I felt I didn't want to take like a regular sort of, I was worried about taking like a regular software engineering job because I thought that I might be a little bit bored, but I didn't think I could necessarily step into a like director or VP level job at like a big company, given that my startup was never ever like really big. I never managed, you know, a huge massive organization or something like that. So then I, I started taking some interviews for product positions. Nothing was really a fit. I got offered some stuff like marketing roles, but then I didn't, I was like, well, I don't know that I really want to be in marketing. So then I decided to focus on engineering, which also I had spent 10 years studying computer science. So I was like, I should probably go back to those skills and where I kind of started my career. And also, I knew how to prepare for those types of interviews. So I spent a couple of months basically just like learning. It was a really fun time because I, I was uh, learning all these like technology, newer technologies that I wasn't able to put time into because I was busy running a company while also getting ready for interviews. My wife said that I was like the hardest working unemployed person she'd ever met because I was just like constantly, it was like driving me nuts that I didn't have a job. So I was just like preparing, preparing, preparing. And also given that I had failed to get that Google interview when I was just like basically a kid, I never wanted to be in a position again where I went and did an interview with a company I really wanted to work for and I failed to properly prepare and not like win that job essentially. So I'd start taking engineering interviews. I got a bunch of offers I was excited about. And, but I'd also thought that it would be good for my career to also take a job at like a marquee company that lots of people have heard of because I've never really had a position like that. So I like had interviews set up with like Amazon and Airbnb and Google and so on. But what happened with Google was I was originally referred there as a software engineer. And, but when they saw my background as like a founder, I'd been blogging for a long time. I taught at university. I published, you know, works, spoke at conferences, and all this sort of stuff. They were like, 
they called me and they said like, hey, we think you would be a great fit for developer relations. And I was like, cool, what's developer relations? Because I'd never heard of it before. And then they explained like, it's a, you know, it's an engineering function at Google, but there's also like an educational component to it. There's some, you know, marketing part of it. It's public speaking. You're like a public representative of engineering at Google. And you, you know, you write and all this sort of stuff. I was like, oh, wow, like this does sound like a really good fit for my skills combining like my experience teaching at university, academics, you're on the forefront of technology, which I liked, as well as still doing some level of engineering. So that was really exciting. And then I had a unique opportunity at Google because even though it's a massive company, I was the first DevRel hire for the comms org. And I essentially got to like define and set the strategy for what developer relation was for the uh, products that I was working on. And essentially prove that developer relations makes sense and was valuable. And I, from there, like de- built the function, built the team, grew the team, managed a bunch of engineers and tech writers. And, and that was sort of my introduction in developer relations. I never had technically ex- that job role, but in reality, I've been doing it my entire career, which is, I think, true of most people who find out their way into developer relations. Like going back to university, doing the programming clubs and teaching people about programming, I was basically evangelizing the ACM ICPC programming competitions for free because I enjoyed it myself. It, but it was all like passion driven. And that's kind of what I've tried to focus most of my career on. And it, it was a really great fit and I loved it. But after four years, I was ready to get back to, uh, to startups. That is really unique to essentially have a from scratch position in a big org like that, especially like as a new hire, right? Like you hear about all these like crazy 20% projects that become these, you know, major things. But I haven't heard of this specific journey before. I'm curious, like, is there anything you can kind of generalize from your experience and how you got there that you would recommend to other people? I mean, you mentioned passion as kind of a driving force in your career, but what what else should people think about? Because you've had a really interesting path, right? Like, it's been certainly something I looked at. I was like, oh, wow, like, you've done a lot of really interesting, varied work. And I think a lot of people aspire to that, but have no idea how to create something similar aside from like a linear career path. Yeah, I think my like number one thing that I've been able to do in my career that's allowed me to sort of have this, like do a bunch of different things is, and it wasn't necessarily by design. It just kind of something that happened was just like this like skill stacking, which I think is super value, valuable. And it helps you stand out. Like in my undergrad, my honors was in theory and computation with a minor in math. And I was good at that side of computer science, but it wasn't necessarily like top 90% in the world. And then my master's, I studied artificial intelligence. And then my PhD, I completely went in a different direction and did you know, human-computer interaction and information visualization. And I was able to bring though this some of the skills from theory that I built up in undergrad and machine learning skills to those areas. And that made me pretty unique. You know, I was probably in the you know top ninety percent of someone who understood cognitive support and ACI as well as could prove a theorem and build an ML model. And over time, I've just stacked more of those skills. That's made me, I think, like very adaptable and unique. You know, I can code. I can also understand how to market a product, go demand, develop a go-to-market strategy, design products, build a financial model, improve a theorem. And you know, I think I never planned to go into marketing or be a head of marketing, but when you now with this explosion of developer first companies, API first companies, I think one of the things that we'll start to see is 
the, you know, the head of marketing or the CMOs are going to look a lot more like someone like myself where they can do marketing, but they also have deep technical skills. And I think that's a hard combination to find right now. But if you have that, that's really, really valuable for these types of organizations because you're going to understand how to market those products in an authentic way that is going to allow them to scale, I think, way better than maybe what you know someone who's come from like a more traditional sort of marketing background might be able to do. Yeah, absolutely. One point I'd like to finish on here, because we only have a couple of minutes left, is at Skyflow, you're you're the head of marketing. I noticed that you know you had some DevRel type title at one point, maybe product marketing, but now it's just head of marketing, right? What are some of the big challenges you're working on currently? So I think I guess there's a couple of things. One is like it's a new role. So uh, my scope went from essentially developer relations and product marketing to now I oversee demand generation, event marketing, content marketing, brand, website, PR, and comms. So that you know changes a lot of things from my day to day. It's exciting and fun, but it's now I have to kind of take a step back from being an IC. You know, before I could be a player coach because we weren't necessarily like massive. It wasn't like I was managing a really, really big team. It's harder to do that now with a bigger team and scope. But in terms of like where the like my focus and initiatives are is we've done a lot of things like the challenge with a startup is in the fun part of it is you're essentially defining the machine. You're building the machine. Yep. And when you are doing that, you have to do a lot of experimentation. And some of those experiments don't work. Some of them work great. And you have to continually like refine essentially what we're doing. And sometimes you might get to a point where in that machine where you got to take a step back and rebuild something. And I think we're kind of last year, a lot of it was around like experimentation. We were trying lots of different things and trying to see like what actually worked. Now I think we're to a place where we have enough data and enough understanding of who our ideal customer profile is, like the market we're going after, how to message that stuff. And the things that actually worked, like what the baseline activities are that work, we need to essentially cut the things that are a distraction at this point and really focus on the things that are working and execute on that for the next year. And I think that'll lead to a lot of, you know, essentially positive impact for the for the organization. And it's also like an easier thing to manage and optimize when you're not doing a million things, you're essentially focusing on let's do these 10 things really, really good. Yeah. Awesome. So the question I always like to end on is kind of a almost like a fun thought experiment. Is there any aspirational figure in, in DevRel and tech, maybe in the wider world of you know science and uh, academia that you would love to just like have a couple hours with, take to lunch and pick their brain? So if I can go alive or dead, then I would choose like Alan Turing. Alive, maybe like Kelsey Hightower. I think uh, he's got great stories, takes some pressure off of me to be entertaining. Did, did you get to work with him at all at Google? I didn't. There's people on my team that had a relationship. I was on a walkathon, like steps team with him. That was like my only real interaction with him. But I, I missed, you know, my opportunity, I guess, to uh, do something at a deeper level with him. Maybe who knows? You know, it's a uh, uh, lots of things change over time. So maybe we'll get to work together sometime in the future. Yeah, it seems like a friendly enough guy that you could uh, take to lunch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much, Sean. I really enjoyed our conversation and hearing about your pretty unique zigzaggy path into where you are now. If anyone wants to find you, we'll include some links uh, in the show notes. Thank you again, everyone, for listening. Uh, you know, Like and subscribe if you enjoyed it. And uh, happy hacking. Yeah, thanks, John. Thanks for having me. The State of Developer Education is brought to you by Major League Hacking or MLH. 
To find out more about MLH and how we power innovation, cultivate developer communities, and teach technical skills to students around the world, visit mlh.io. And then make sure to search for developer education in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Don't forget to like and review the show, and we'll give you a shout out on a future episode. On behalf of the team here at MLH, thanks for listening and helping us empower the next generation of technologists. Happy hacking.